Luke chapter 3 this morning. The title of the message is, The Word of God Came. By way of introduction here, I want to note some things. Number one, here the body of the Gospel of Luke actually begins here with this third chapter. The first two chapters really just provide introductory background information. And the confirmation of this is, uh, for this conclusion here, is Luke's identifying the exact time that John's ministry began, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, there in chapter 3, verse number 1. Luke includes here all the various political leaders controlling the Judean state. The Roman dictator, Tiberius Caesar, who ruled from 14 A.D. to 30, uh, AD 14 to, to 37, he succeeded Augustus Caesar, uh, who uh, ruled from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. And during his reign, that is Tiberius' reign, Pontius Pilate served as the the region here is governor from 26 to 36. Herod Antipas is mentioned here. Herod Antipas. He's an Idumean from 4 B.C. through A.D. 39. He was the tetrarch of Galilee. Now, here's the question. What is a tetrarch? Tetrarch means one who rules over a fourth part of a region. So he's ruling over one one of those parts, and that was over Galilee. Uh, this was the region that was originally ruled over by Herod the Great, who died in 4 B.C. Herod also was appointed by the Romans. At his death... Herod's region was divided among his four sons. Herod Antipas, Philip, actually ruled over two regions. And the reason why he ruled over those regions was because his brother Archelaus was deposed in AD 6. So he ruled over Ituria, which was in the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and Trachonitis, which was north and east of Mount Hermone. Later, uh, was renamed there Caesarea Philippi. And Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene, a city northwest of Damascus. Luke also includes the high priests because they were political leaders of this time. Ananus and Caiaphas both of whom are titled here high priest, which is kind of uh, interesting because the office of the high priest was a lifetime position. So there should have been only one high priest living. But they're both called high priest. And the reason is because this office became a political seat during the Roman dominion. The priest's office then changed, uh, changing here with the political wind. The Caesar didn't like what a certain high priest was doing there. He deposed him and put another in his place. There are, I believe, six 
high priests that were that were active during this period, three of which are named in the New Testament, Annas and Caiaphas, which was actually Annas's son-in-law, and later Paul stood before Ananias there in the book of Acts, so he's named there. Sadly, the high priests and their party, the Sadducees, because all high priests, all the priests were members of the Sadducees, of the Sadducees sect, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, and uh, they were Sadducee because they didn't believe anything. The Sadducees were more interested in conforming to the world than they were in promoting God and promoting holiness in Israel. This political background here is provided for the reader by Luke for two, I think, two reasons. Number one, since the Babylonian captivity Israel had been dominated by the Gentile powers. This, do, uh, this domination will end only when Jesus Christ rules the world as King of Kings. The domination of Judah was just about to be over in 70 AD. So the background here of John is... High, full of high tension, political undercurrents. Many Jews not happy at all with ha ha being dominated by the Romans, and their expectation of Messiah was very high. And this is where John begins his ministry, about 28 A.D. It was a very short reign too. After pretty much after uh, he introduced the Lord Jesus Christ, he was put into prison, and Herod Antipas ended his life there because of his calling Herod's sin of marrying his brother Philip's wife into question. Actually, it was the wife that was more interested in seeing Herod remove his head, which he did. So let me also emphasize to you one thing that I think you need to understand. Due to rightly deserved focus upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the tendency is to regard John as merely incidental. comes on the scene, he's ministering for a little while, then he's gone. Jesus takes the main focus. So we look at John and we think, nah, he's just sort of incidental. But that's a serious mistake. And here's why. Luke's emphasis here shows that to be otherwise. Luke deliberately spotlights the Jewish expectation of the Messiah Christ. Granting John was only the forerunner of the Christ, at this point, Luke's emphasis is on John, not Jesus. John played an essential role in the transition between the Old and New Covenants. God prepared him for this particular role. And this is evident by uh, two things. First, in Luke's giving considerable space to introducing John the Baptist in the first chapter. Just go back and look at all 
the space that was given to him. His coming announced by the angel Gabriel. His being filled, spirit-filled from the womb. Zechariah's uh, lengthy prophecy at his birth describing John's role in announcing God's visitation, which is judgment, the judgment of Israel, and for the redeeming of his people, the righteous remnant. Luke concludes chapter 1 with a very brief but important statement about his growing up and being in the wilderness until his appearance to Israel. There in verse 80 of that first chapter. The second thing, the second reason why his it's why Luke why it's important showing Luke's stress here is that John's role was necessary to ending the old covenant era and paving the way for the new. So important was John's ministry that when he began to preach about the kingdom of God, many who heard wondered whether he, John, what what might be the Christ. Notice verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Even after his death, his the works of Jesus were attributed to John. Whom they believed to be doing so, these works, because he was raised from the dead. And you see this in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen Herod said John I beheaded but who is this about whom I hear such things and he sought to see him see John here served God's purpose in bringing in the kingdom. And let me explain this here. So number my first major point here is the prophet Elijah returned to Israel. Notice the people said, it's, if it's not John, it's Elijah. Well, yes, it, it is. Elijah served God as the watchdog of the Old Covenant primarily over the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of wicked Ahab. Interestingly, nothing is recorded of either Elijah's birth or his ancestry. Now, why is that? We don't know. It's actually led many scholars to conclude that he was not even a Jew. He was not even an Israelite. And the reason is because of his origin. He's Elijah the Tishbite, which means he was from Tishbe in Get of Gilead, probably on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. His name means 
Yahweh is my God, which may be regarded as the motto of his life. He was very zealous for the Lord in a very wicked time in Israel's history. Like John, Elijah was a lonely figure living in the wilderness. The wilderness was God's place for both testing his people and showing his provision for them, which he did abundantly in the life of Elijah. The prophet then appeared in public only when God needed him to confront the sins of the king. He did not die, but was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. Malachi 4 mentions Elijah as in, in a symbolic way, as the harbinger of the day of the Lord. That is the day of judgment on the nation of Israel. And being the forerunner of Messiah, John fulfilled that prophecy. We know that from Luke chapter 1, verse 17. John, and this was, remember, the angel Gabriel's own words. John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And actually citing there from the book of Malachi. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready a people prepared. Matthew chapter 11 verses 12 to 15 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, this is Jesus speaking, the, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violent, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yeah, if you're willing to accept it, it doesn't matter whether you accept it or not, it's the fact. Secondly here, John was in the wilderness and the word of God came to him. That's a, that's the, he's a prophet now, see? He's out, out there in the wilderness, and all of a sudden the word of God comes to him. 400 years God has been quite silent. And now a prophet is coming back on the scene. God, the word of the Lord, came to him. He is so making him the last prophet of the Old Covenant era, just as Jesus said. That he was, the, for the law and the prophets were until John. John is the last prophet of the Old Covenant era. And he came to announce the day of the Lord to Israel and the coming New Covenant era of Christ. So he goes into all the region around Jordan. I think there's some significance to that too. Here is another symbolic reference. What was the Jordan River? God had promised to Abraham that his seed would possess a land. And when they came up out of Egypt, they crossed through the wilderness to the shores of the Jordan River. 
bank of the Jordan River. And that parted miraculously for them, even at, at that flood stage. And they walked through, just like they did through the Dead Sea, they walked through the Jordan River on dry ground to take possession of the land that God had promised them if they obeyed Him and walked in all His ways and kept His precepts and honored Him and kept themselves from idolatrous worship. He would then drive out the Canaanites before them. He, he didn't tell them to drive out the Canaanites. He said, I'll drive them out. You just come in and take possession of the land, which they did. And what was the purpose of it to establish the kingdom of God? But they failed, see? The nation proved incapable of obeying God and serving Him faithfully in the land that He promised to them. So here at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 16 to 20. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. See the condition? You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and the length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Uh -uh. They didn't. They didn't live it. Even though the people of Israel did cease from their idolatrous ways during the Babylonian captivity, they nevertheless succumbed to a worse evil. What it was it? As Malachi records, they became self-absorbed, profane, profaning the covenant with faithless, half-hearted, and perfunctory service of worship. They were determined to decide for themselves how they would live before the Lord. The Lord warned them. In Malachi 2 verse 16, Guard, yourse guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be witness and do not be faithless. Excuse me. Malachi 2.16 Again, in chapter 3 verse 5, I will draw you, I, excuse me, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who f swear falsely, against those who oppress 
the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The children of Israel during Jesus' day were guilty of every one of these things. So this warning fell on deaf ears. So in verses 14 and 15 of that third chapter, God said, You have said, It is vain to serve the Lord. What is the profit of your keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test. And they escape, or at least they think they do. And I'm, I'm afraid this sounds like many Christians today. But thirdly, the Lord's prophet then confronted the nation, calling them to repent because the day promised was about to descend upon them. He's the last prophet of the Old Covenant who is declaring to them that the Old Covenant is ending and that one of the major things is the destruction of the nation. So what does he do? He calls them to repentance. Just like a good, like old Elijah of old called them, called them to repentance. They should repent and then publicly prove their repentance by being baptized, that is, immersed in water which was symbolic of cleansing. John's baptism must not be confused with Christian baptism. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to pause here a second. For would be better translated because of the forgiveness of sins. It did not produce forgiveness. Do not, don't make that mistake. And I don't know why the, the English translators prefer the word for. It is not for the forgiveness of sins. It's because of the forgiveness of sins. And I'll, I'll show you that in a second here. Compare that with, with Peter's instruction in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. It's interesting that in both cases, in John, when John preached, the people cried out, What shall we do? And when Peter preached on, on the day of Pentecost, they said the same thing. What shall we do? Peter answered, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, because of the forgiveness of sin, Because, not for, because of the forgiveness of sins. The Greek preposition here, and I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson, is ice. Ice means, uh, ordinarily just simply means into. But actually it, uh, it has the idea of because of. Because of, not for the forgiveness of sins. Two things need to be said about this instruction. First, remember... That Peter is addressing Jewish people 
In fact, he was in, they were he was in the portico of the temple when he preached this. He's addressing Jewish people who understood the old covenant ritual cleansing. So when they heard Peter, they did not hear baptism would save them. They knew better. If baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, the Greek would either use epi, which means upon, or pros, which means toward, or even better, huper, which means for the sake of. No, both John's and Christian baptism are a public display of obedience. The first of repentance but the latter of identification. Let me emphasize this. Christian baptism is public identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So Paul tells us in Romans 6, 4, we were buried, and I think here he's not talking about water baptism, but he's using water baptism to illustrate this. We were buried with him by baptism, by immersion into Jesus Christ, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The baptism, physical baptism, water baptism, pictures that and identifies us with it. John's baptism, however, was different. As Paul notes later when he went to Ephesus and found there some believers and asked them, unto, which, unto whose baptism were you baptized? And they said, unto John's. And Peter, then, excuse me, Paul then said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the, the people to believe on the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Under the Lord, name of the Lord Jesus. That's Acts chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. See? There's a difference. Now there's a fourth thing here. And that is all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, cite Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. Well, uh, actually... Uh, they all cite this Isaiah 40 as fulfilling John's ministry. Matthew and Mark, however, quote only the first two lines. While Luke adds more. Like Elijah, John was an itinerant preacher, not officially approved by Israel's religious leaders. So here again, Wilderness is symbolic, pointing to the passage from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was also figurative of the Babylonian exile away from the Promised Land. It was prophetic of the true Israel in the wilderness of the world needing a way to pass safely into the kingdom of God. It, when when uh, 
when is God's promise to Abraham that his people would possess the land going to be realized? Well, in, in many respects, his promise to, to the physical seed of Abraham was realized in the possession of the land under Joshua. But remember, God told him, only if you obey me, which they failed to do. And he warned them that they would lose it if they did. But he told Abraham that he would give them that land forever. So how is that, that going to be realized? under the new covenant when Jesus Christ comes and calls the people to himself that will be obedient and they're going to be obedient because they will be changed to be like Christ forever and the new heavens and the new earth will be their possession forever. See, that's what it's all about right there. Repentance was required for, for righteousness. That is, righteousness having to do with right or justice. And notice in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40, it is seen in these words, make his paths straight. This was symbolic of the leveling of all things to remove obstacles. The obstacles were in the hearts of, of the people needing to repent. So Matthew chapter 3, 5, and 6, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and all, excuse me, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan, were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John's not entering Jeru into Jerusalem here, is an interesting thing. He didn't go into Jerusalem. He's not found in the temple preaching. Why? I believe it's because his message points to Yahweh's rejection of the city. I'm done with you. Jesus is going to state the same thing in Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent out sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you, that is the religious leaders of the city, were not willing. See, your house is left unto you desolate. It's rejected. Now, but on the other hand, notice this: the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees did go out to hear him out into the wilderness by the Jordan. All this crowd standing around listening to John preach there, right in the out right there in the back row. Now, see, back row sitters. 
Yeah, they were. They stood there scratching their beards and scowls on their faces, tapping their feet, listening to John. Listen, you know, uh, Luke doesn't specifically mention it. The uh, Matthew chapter three verse seven is what where we found this in particular. But both Matthew and Luke give us the message here that he preached, which included uh, this. The, uh, and and let me let me back up just a second here. Why doesn't Luke mention this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And I think it's because his objective is more universal, as seen in uh, that last phrase there of the statement of Isaiah chapter 40, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Whereas Matthew isn't, is interested in pointing out that the uh, scribes and the Pharisees were there to listen, but listen to the message because that was directed to them. And both Matthew and Luke state that, that message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, preacher, you shouldn't be. You don't 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 call your congregation vipers. <laughs> you brood of vipers. That reminds me of again. Reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ there, Matthew chapter twenty. <clears throat> 23 there when he roasts the scribes and the Pharisees and calls them a, vip, a, a viper's den. That brings me to the second thing, and that is John's message to Israel. He is to preach here judgment on Israel. That's his job, is to declare judgment upon Israel. So his main message to Israel was to announce the coming judgment and the wrath to the nation. So he warned, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then later in that statement, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now the axe is laid. That's destructive. You don't put an axe to trees that you're trying to cause to be better trees. You're cutting them down. That's what he's talking about. So then he goes on to say, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit. There's the criterion. Is cut down and thrown into the fire of God's eternal damnation. That's verse 9. Jesus used the same analogy in his Sermon on the Mount, and where he is, again, contrasting citizens of the kingdom with the supposed citizens of the kingdom, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, if you, unless your righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. But in uh, chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, he says, you will recognize them by their fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist's very words right there. You will then recognize them by their fruit. Diseased trees don't yield good fruit. Neither do healthy trees produce bad fruit. Thus, to call, the call to repentance was to appeal to many and to any who would join the righteous remnant to be part of the church and to produce good works that would glorify Christ when he established his new covenant. So secondly, here John warned them not to rely on their ancestral connection. That is to Abraham. Notice verse 8a. Do not begin to say to, you, to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus, again, uh, it, it's interesting, he follows up on this there in the Gospel of John. Abraham is our father. And Jesus told them, hey, be, uh, let's not go there. John John here tells them, he says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the new covenant assures us of this fulfillment. Paul, as Paul stated, and Ron quoted this, these very verses here this morning at, at the table. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel before, that's the new covenant gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Galatians chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. This was also confirmed in the words of Isaiah that the result of the prepared way would be that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Not just Jews. Thirdly here, the ultimate evidence of real repentance was, was not baptism, but practical righteousness. That is good works. Thus responding to John, the convicted crowd, asked, What shall we do? John gave practical good works suggestions. And Jesus did the same. We see that there in the book of James as well. Good works don't save us, but they prove our salvation. They give evidence of it. So John here gives practical good work suggestions. First of all, to all in general, that they should share what they had with those who were in need. This, these aren't specific commands here. Okay, let me see. I've checked that one off. I've helped somebody. No, that's not it. It's, are you, are you a person who is looking out for others and are not just self-interested? Just living for yourself? Or are you concerned about those that are round about you to see to it that, that their welfare is also looked after? 
And then there were the tax collectors that came to him and said, what do we do? He said, just be honest. Be honest. Not collecting more than was authorized. See, that was one of the problems of tax collectors in that day. That's why they had such a problem with Matthew. That, that always interested me. Matthew's the gospel written to the Jews. But he was a tax collector. And tax collectors were notorious for, for extorting from people everything they could because they had the authority to do so under the Romans. And then we have soldiers who came to him. Said, what about us? Said, don't be tyrants. Stop bossing people around. Making people carry your pack around. You know, that's what they would do. They would come in and they'd, they'd say, I'm tired of carrying this pack. Hey, you, come over here. Some little guy, carry my pack. Remember? So... He said, uh, don't threaten anyone, don't falsely accuse anyone, but being content with your wages. And here was another thing. Soldiers in that day enriched themselves with plunder in the victory. In victory. You're getting paid? Salt. They got paid salt. <laughs> You're getting paid? Be content with your wages and don't be going around plundering people. These good works aren't to and can't save anyone. And they are given as evidence of salvation and true repentance. And lastly, here the preaching of repentance was for the preparation to welcome the Messiah Christ. And John says, he, when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This was at Pentecost, launching the gospel era. But two things, here again, dividing people, baptizing with the Holy Spirit upon those who are believers, and fire at his second coming and the great white throne. See, he came first as a Savior. Not to judge, but to save. But when he went back to glory, Paul says, God has given all judgment to the Son. So at his second coming, and the great white throne, according to Revelation 20, verses 15, uh, 11 to 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's actually verse 16. The baptism that Christ would offer was the true baptism pictured in John's water baptism. They would, he would save or judge having his winnowing fork in his hand both to gather the grain into his barn and to burn the chaff with the fire of judgment, which is eternal damnation in unquenchable fire. Are you part of his grain? Or are you part of the chaff? Every human being on the face of the earth will either be grain in his granary or chaff in the fire. Which 
place will you go? Which place will you go? And this is a work of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this instruction from Luke's Gospel concerning the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New. And Father, it is very distressing to us that there's so much confusion about that issue today. We're not anti-Semitic. We, we, we want to see them, Jewish people, people of Israel, come to Jesus Christ as much as we want to see anybody. And we're willing to send missionaries to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. But we know that, that they reject it. They reject it. Some do. Some do, are called and are brought to, to salvation. Lord, I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying for many to come to Christ. But there aren't two peoples. One people that, of Israel that you're going to deal with separately with a different program than you deal with the church. No. You made it very clear. They're done. The true Israel is Jesus Christ. And all who are in Jesus Christ are part of the people of God. We, we're, we're concerned and interested in seeing many brought into the kingdom to live in this wilderness time following the Lord and being provided for by the Lord, tested by the Lord. We're in the kingdom. We're in this wilderness period waiting for the day when we will enter cross the Jordan, as it were. In fact, Lord, people have for years regarded death as crossing the Jordan into the promised land. Where we will dwell with you forever in a perfect environment. In a new Eden a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Prepare us, Lord, for that. And I pray that if there's one individual in this audience who has never responded to Jesus Christ savingly, that your spirit would work in that heart and bring that one to yourself. And we would praise you and thank you for it. The Lord, just grant mercies on us now in Jesus' name. Amen.